Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the first epistle of Peter, chapter 1. First Peter, chapter 1. Our text this evening is found in verses 4 and 5 of this passage. We hear the word of God in first Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Thus far we read from God's holy word. As I said, our text this evening is found in this passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. 4 and 5, where we read, 
to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, we, at least most of us, are no doubt citizens of the United States. I know that in former years there were a good number of Canadians, citizens present here. Certainly as citizens of a country we have various rights, responsibilities. The Apostle Peter would have us be good citizens here for God's sake. He addresses our calling with regard to the government and civil authorities in chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. But no doubt you've heard of such a thing as dual citizenship. And some countries permit their citizens to obtain what is called dual citizenship. When my wife and I lived in Canada, as we did for more than 15 years, we seriously at one point thought about applying for dual citizenship. We ended up, we never pursued that. But the point is, in a sense, we as Christians have a dual citizenship. Certainly we are citizens of an earthly country, but from a spiritual perspective, our citizenship is in heaven. From a practical point of view, I fear our heavenly citizenship sometimes recedes into the background. We're very busy, often preoccupied with the here and the now, the relationships of life, our families, our work, our studies, recreation, sports, a host of other things. Over the last couple of years, we've been at times focused upon the so-called pandemic and the changes and restrictions that that may have involved for us. Certainly, we've been preoccupied by issues, controversy within our churches. But Peter would impress upon us the fact that by grace, we are but pilgrims here. And if there's anything that motivates us and encourages us in our pilgrim calling here, it is that glorious inheritance that awaits us in that heavenly country. We are but pilgrims here, travelers on our way home because of God's sovereign election. That's Peter's perspective. God has sovereignly conceived of his people that they should be strangers for a while in the midst of this present world. He elected them out of the world to be a peculiar possession unto himself in distinction also from others. He chose them in divine and eternal and sovereign love that in them he might manifest his life. By God's grace, we also actually become strangers in this life and world. More and more by grace we are strangers to a world of darkness, to a life of sin, to the things of this present time, so that we do not seek them and we do not set our hearts upon them. We have another life. We have become another people, new creatures in Christ. We are changed into aliens in the world, citizens of another country, the heavenly. And that country we seek, that's home. And we long for that. We hope for that. 
We prize it above all the gold and silver, above all the pleasures and treasures of this world, do we not? For it we live and labor day by day. For it we strive and suffer to gain it. We are willing to lose all, yea, if necessary, our very lives by the grace of God. For we have been begotten again unto a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we lift up our heads in hope. We seek the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And we are given encouragement with the hope of that eternal, incorruptible inheritance that fadeth not away. We need that encouragement. We are yet so weak. Our struggles in this life are many. Our way here below as pilgrims and strangers is not easy. The world of unbelief hates and persecutes God's people. Here we are often in the fiery furnace of affliction and hardship and sorrow. But still, by grace, we long for the realization of our hope. That unspeakably glorious inheritance is ours, reserved in heaven for us. And we are preserved by God's power through faith for it. The Apostle Peter describes that inheritance in our text and as God's children, pilgrims and strangers here, it's enough to make us homesick. And it's in this light that we consider this evening our text under the theme, Our Certainty of the Glorious Inheritance. And we notice, first of all, that inheritance, secondly, its security, and finally, our preservation. Now, it's perfectly clear from even a quick glance at our text that our heavenly home is not some small and dirty shack, nor is it even true that our home is similar to a magnificent mansion in which the rich or the famous of this world might live. The splendor and glory of our home in heaven is incomparably wonderful and glorious. And the treasures of that home which shall be given to us when we get there are treasures which far outweigh in value anything we could possibly possess in this world. The Apostle Peter speaks of the blessedness of our heavenly home as an inheritance. It's very significant language. As you know, it's characteristic of an inheritance that, generally speaking, an inheritance is given by a father to a son. And that was eminently true in the history of the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament times. The families who moved into the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua, were each given an inheritance by lot in that land flowing with milk and honey. And that inheritance was passed on from father to son by law. In fact, it was essential, of essential importance that that law be observed. It was God's will that an inheritance remain in the same family. We have only to think of the godly man Naboth, who lived in the northern kingdom in the days of wicked King Ahab and wicked Queen Jezebel. The wicked king had set his heart on the vineyard of Naboth, as you recall, 
What was Naboth's response? We read in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 3, And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. He was steadfast to observe the word of the Lord. Now that earthly symbol and picture is fully realized in the new dispensation. God's people are become God's children. They are not such of themselves. It's true of all men what Jesus said to the wicked Jews. Ye are of your father the devil whose works ye do. But It is the purpose of our God that he has adopted his people into his own family, made them his sons and his daughters. It's emphasized by Peter in the verse immediately preceding our text where Peter speaks of the fact that we are begotten again by God by means of this spiritual rebirth. We are given the life of our heavenly Father and incorporated into his family. That's why Peter speaks of heaven as an inheritance. What we receive from God is a family inheritance given by our Heavenly Father to us, his children. In addition, it's characteristic of an inheritance that it is freely given. One does not earn an inheritance An inheritance is not wages for work that's been done or a reward merited for service. An inheritance is given simply because of family relationships which exist. One receives an inheritance because one is a member of the family. Generally speaking, no other reason exists. And the importance of this is plain. The inheritance which is ours is given to us freely and of sovereign grace. We are incorporated into God's family as a gift of grace. We receive the inheritance of heaven which our Father has prepared because, simply because we're members of his family. It's not something we earn. It's not payment for work we've done. Not reward for faithful service. Not wages granted to those who labor. It is in the strictest possible sense an inheritance. But what is that inheritance? We already sense that it's certainly not something material. It's not a matter of dollars and cents, of investments or houses or lands or farms. It's a heavenly inheritance. And the essence of it all is, of course, salvation. All the riches of salvation. And it ought to be immediately clear that inasmuch as salvation is the very essence of this inheritance, that we have this inheritance already, already now. We are saved in this life. And yet Peter makes an important distinction. Our present salvation is only in principle. Yes, our hearts have been regenerated. We have the beginnings of the new obedience, but there is yet much sin in us. And these bodies are still subject to injury, weakness, disease, death. We face the grim prospect of going to the grave. We are heirs of salvation only in a small measure. So we must understand that our inheritance is the full and the complete salvation which shall be ours when we go to be with Christ. This salvation includes the full and complete 
deliverance from sin. Think of that. No more sin. It's really this, more than anything else, which is attractive to the child of God. His longing to go to heaven is not so much because there in that distant land he will walk upon streets of gold. His vision of heaven is not a matter of floating about on some shiny cloud. When all is said and done, the attractiveness of heaven is to be found in the complete freedom from sin. That's our greatest burden now in this world, in this life, in all our pilgrim journey. That continuous sin which weighs heavily upon us brings sighs to our tortured souls to be Delivered from sin is the highest good. As we read of that heavenly city in Revelation 22, verse 3, there shall be no more curse. And as we see from the previous chapter, Revelation 21, that includes all the effects of the curse of sin. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And yet, this can't be separated from the positive blessedness of fellowship with God. All our pilgrim way, we anxiously lift our faces to the skies. We pray to our Father, whom we cannot see. And we often come into His presence trembling, hiding, as it were, behind Christ, our Savior. But, beloved, when finally we are cleansed at last from sin, when we find our true rest in heaven, we shall be with Christ face to face and see in the face of Christ, the Savior, God Himself. The tabernacle of God will be with men, and He will dwell with them. So this inheritance is covenant fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. And having fellowship with God, we shall be with all the saints made perfect and with the holy angels. The happiness and the joy shall be complete there. For sin and suffering and shame and sorrow shall be gone, yea, forever. And all the blessings of salvation, of which we have now uh, but a small taste, as it were, will be ours perfectly and completely and everlastingly. But Peter tells us this inheritance is in heaven nonetheless. And Scripture itself, when describing heaven uses figurative language. The realities of heaven are so far beyond our earthly conception and imagination that really no earthly language is adequate to convey their glory. Of one thing we can be certain, when finally we arrive in glory and see what heaven is like, we will no doubt say, as the queen of Sheba said, awed by the splendor of King Solomon's kingdom, stunned by the glory of his palace, the half has not been told me. And here the wonder of this inheritance is described in three negative words. That's striking. They are negative. 
Because really, heaven cannot be described for us in any positive way with the use of positive adjectives because it's simply too wonderful for that. And all Peter and the Scriptures can say is, heaven is not like this, not like this world, not like the treasures of this world. Not like anything we would imagine here below, which is the object of these earthly senses. And we have that sometimes already here in this life. When you might try to describe to someone, say, a, a beautiful piece sung by a choir, And words can almost fail us. They simply don't do justice. And we say, no, it wasn't wasn't like that. that. That doesn't do justice to it. And so it is, as Peter describes our inheritance. It's not corruptible. It's not defiled. It never passes away. Everything here in this world is corruptible, including ourselves. Death, rot, surround us. Think of the flowers for which this area is famous. A week ago, a little more than a week ago, my wife and I were given a bouquet of freshly cut Dahlias. Beautiful. Beautiful. They were quickly put in a vase of water. Beautiful. But the days tick off. Pretty soon, they are withered. They are brown, curling up. They must be tossed away. All glory fades in this creation. Death reigns. Corruption sets in. Nothing lasts. As Jesus pointed out in the Sermon on the Kingdom, the treasures of this world are of such a kind that moth and rust corrupt them. Heaven is not like this. We shall not be like this in heaven. There is no change, no variation in the beauty of glory and the blessedness of heaven's treasures. They become with each passing day more and more beautiful. Death does not reign there as it does here. All does not end in the dust of the earth and isn't swallowed up by the mouth of the grave. Nor is there any defilement there, for sin shall be gone. Here in this world, all is stained and made unspeakably dirty by the corruption and filth of sin. All the relationships of this life are defiled by sin. All the marvelous inventions of men are so many tools to pursue evil ends. All of the arts and culture become filthy with sin. The music, paintings, literature, all defiled by sin. Man leaves, as it were, his bloody fingerprints of his wickedness on everything. He makes filthy everything he touches. It's a grief. That's reality. Beloved, the inheritance in heaven is not like this. It's freed from the awful stain of sin nor can our inheritance ever pass away. It is, in the strict sense of the word, everlasting. This is our inheritance in the home towards which we are pressing on in our pilgrim journey. But, beloved, there's... Always the question 
a very important question. Will that inheritance indeed be ours? We know that in this life, the matter of inheritance is no sure thing. Suppose a father has gained an estate valued at several million dollars. His intention is to leave this vast estate to his son. The son may look forward to the day when this becomes his. He may be very eager for that day. He may live, in fact, for that day when he will become heir of all that his father owns. But there are two things that could happen very easily to make him a very disappointed fellow. On the one hand, something could happen to that inheritance. It's possible that through some depression or economic collapse or other calamity, the value of his father's estate simply disappears entirely. It may be that when the time comes for him to receive that inheritance, it's worthless. There's really no value to it. It's happened before in this world. It can happen again. But on the other hand, it may be that something happens to the young man himself. He may pass away even before his father dies. Or he may, through some foolishness, fall from his father's favor and be disinherited. He may, in carelessness and sin, make himself unworthy of receiving that estate. And when the will is read at his father's decease, he finds to his chagrin and growing anger that his father has left everything to charity or to someone else. That too has happened, and it'll happen again. The Apostle Peter is concerned lest we think the same thing might happen to us. We might think that something will happen to our inheritance before the time comes to receive it. Or it's conceivable that something might happen to us. And that's much more likely. For we're very conscious of the fact that we are yet so dreadfully sinful Every day we commit so many sins that we merit our Father's displeasure. We fall into sin. We're constantly unworthy children who of ourselves deserve to be disinherited, written right out of the will. To comfort us in this respect, to assure us of the certainty of our inheritance, Peter adds some very important words. On the one hand, Peter tells us that this inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. God will take care of that inheritance. He will keep it in safety as no earthly father is able to keep an inheritance. He will watch over it and protect it. He will preserve it carefully so that none of its glory and blessedness is diminished before we are taken home. He will guard it with his own sovereign and all-powerful care. Really, the certainty that this inheritance will be kept for us is to be found in the cross and in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That inheritance is earned on the cross and as certain as is the atonement of Christ and his powerful resurrection from the dead, so certain is our inheritance. Jesus, already before his death, can say with utmost certainty, in my Father's house are many mansions, I go 
to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Understand that inheritance was prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. For in God's sovereign and immutable counsel, that inheritance is prepared from eternity, and his people, the objects of his abundant and eternal mercy, are in that counsel the possessors of the incorruptible and undefiled inheritance that never fadeth away. As the Apostle Paul declares in Romans 8, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the, according to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Truly, that which eye hath not seen, and ear hath not heard, and never has entered into the heart of man to conceive, God prepared for them that love him. From before the foundation of the world, the inheritance is already prepared reserved in heaven for you. It's prepared because centrally it is realized in our Lord Jesus Christ. He merited the inheritance for his brethren. We are co-heirs with him, rightful heirs. We are truly, not because of any merit or righteousness of our own, On the contrary, we had forfeited all. We were by nature objects of wrath, even as others. Sinful and guilty, we could never stand. But we belong to him who is the firstborn among many many brethren. He came to take our guilt away, to merit for us the righteousness of God out of pure and everlasting love his suffering and shed blood, his death, his perfect answer to God's love me are the meritorious causes of our being the rightful heirs of the inheritance of eternal glory. On him alone, on his atoning blood, his cross and resurrection, our hope is firmly founded. Not only did Christ merit the eternal inheritance for his brethren in the way of his perfect obedience, but the same inheritance is also centrally realized in him. And in him it is reserved in heaven for us who believe on his name. For he was raised from the dead, and being raised he was clothed with power and great glory, the very glory of that incorruptible and undefiable inheritance that never fades away. And into that glory of that inheritance in the highest heavens, he was received. And he is filled with the Spirit and with all the gifts of grace necessary to realize for all of his brethren the final salvation that is to be revealed in the last time. He is, therefore, the central realization of the glorious inheritance in heaven. And therefore, it's all prepared. And in heaven it's reserved. Reserved for you, to whom God has given the power of faith to be engrafted into the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe on his name. No power of darkness is capable of reaching into that inheritance to destroy its glory and beauty. No, we we cannot yet see that inheritance. With the eyes of faith, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And we know 
that that inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. It is secure, perfectly secure. But not only is that inheritance very carefully preserved for us, but beloved, we are also preserved by God so that we shall surely inherit the treasures which God has prepared. For Peter says we are guarded by God's power, kept by the power of God. There's obviously a figure being used here. It's the figure of a city with high, wide walls, guarded and protected from enemy attack by the bulwarks surrounding the inhabitants, by a strong army. The city is impregnable, unable to be taken, a mighty fortress. God's power is the protection of his people. We are oh so small and insignificant and weak. And our enemies are many enemies who seek our destruction. Not the least of our enemies is our own flesh in which is so much sin. But God's power is entirely adequate to preserve and guard us. And that's not not only because God's power is much greater than the power of all of our enemies so that in any contest we may be sure that God will be victorious, but rather God's power is so complete and so universal that it extends also over those enemies. They can do nothing without His will. You cannot be safer than that. What comfort that is in the midst of the evil days in which we presently live. In addition, don't forget that God's power is the power of wisdom. God knows the best way to prepare His people for and take them to glory. God knows how all things are able to serve that purpose in the best way. And God's power is the power of love and grace. For he loves his people with an eternal, unchanging love which is manifest in the cross. All things which happen to us come in God's infinite love. And so, beloved, it's the power of the cross itself. The power of that complete and final victory of Jesus Christ over all the forces of sin and death, and hell. And God wants us to know and to be fully aware of our salvation and the way to that final and glorious salvation. And therefore, the power of God operates in us through faith. Through faith, which is The power as it is the gift of God's grace. Never is faith a condition which you must fulfill, but it is that power of God that works in our hearts, enabling us to cling in hope to that God of our salvation who will never let us go. And so God preserves not only our inheritance, but also us And we persevere until we attain our glorious inheritance. The inheritance which is ready to be revealed in the last time. That it is ready to be revealed means that, as we've already seen, it's already prepared. And that makes it objectively real. And this idea is in harmony with the rest of the text that emphasizes that the inheritance is reserved in heaven. But that it is to be revealed means that at the present time, 
It's hidden from our view. An inheritance is behind the curtain of the heavenly, so to speak. And this revelation can be compared to the unveiling of a statue. In one moment, the statue is hidden under a veil. But when that veil is removed, the thing hidden is suddenly revealed. So, our inheritance, our final and glorious salvation is ready to be unveiled. And what, what an unveiling that will be. And the thought stirs in us eager anticipation. Again, that which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor has it ever entered into the heart of man to conceive, is that which God has laid away for those who love him. No words are to be found that can begin to describe it. Ready to be unveiled in the last time. Now time here must be understood not from the point of view of its being a succession of moments, though it is undoubtedly true that there is such a succession at the end of which will be the last moment of time as we know it now. Yet according to the text, time must not be viewed as we watch it tick off on our watch or clock but rather time here must be conceived of as the opportune occasion, the very last event that will occur in time. To that last occasion in history, all other occasions work. The entire eternal counsel of God has as its central and final objective the revelation of this inheritance and all of history is really the unraveling of this plan and counsel of God. And the very last event that fills up this purpose of God is the final and glorious salvation of his people when we shall be united with him in an unseverable bond and abide with him in all his glory. Then, Time as we know it now shall cease. Then the counsel of God with regard to history shall be finished. Then with all God's redeemed creation we shall enter into and abide in our glorious inheritance. That, that will be glory indeed. Beloved, until then, by faith, we continue on in this pilgrim journey. But we're called to be sober, to be watchful, to live with uplifted heads. We watch, we pray, we repent, we return by the grace of God. We fight the battle of faith even unto the end. By faith we hope and trust, clinging all the while to the God of our salvation. And so we are not kept in God's power without anything hurtful ever touching us. We know better. But we are, by the power of God, kept as it works in us and through us by faith. What an inheritance. Is that the object of your hope? That heavenly inheritance? If not, if all this talk of a heavenly inheritance means nothing to you, if it does not make you a bit homesick, if you have only a purely carnal hope regarding the here and the now, the Word of God says repent. 
The things of this present time surely perish, and all the ungodly shall perish with them. This world is passing away with the lusts thereof. But if through the wonder of God's grace we have received that power of a true and living faith, we too are kept by the power of God. And we are kept through faith unto the salvation that's revealed to us in the last time. Then we experience, all right, that we are sojourners, strangers in this world, but we continue on in hope. For the inheritance is safe. It is kept for us, reserved in heaven for us. Its glory is staggering. Its blessedness is all the object of our hope. The certainty of receiving it is greater than all earthly security. It is a hope that will never make us ashamed. Thanks be to God, the God of our salvation. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, what marvelous things Thou dost hold before our eyes of faith, things which our earthly eyes cannot see. We cannot conceive the great glory of our inheritance, but give us understanding hearts, believing hearts, Grant Thy grace and the working of Thy Spirit whereby we continue now in the week which lies before us, young and old alike, in our pilgrim journey, living with uplifted heads, seeking to serve and glorify Thy name, awaiting that inheritance which is secure, living in the knowledge that we, too, as thy people, are safely kept. We ask it with the remission of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.